you're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Serling's iconic series, one episode at a time. I also cover modern anthology science fiction shows such as Black Mirror and the upcoming Jordan Peele Twilight Zone reboot in bonus episode review series. You can find more of Anthology as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at ovanthologypod, or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Today on the podcast, I'll be discussing A Penny for Your Thoughts. It's the 16th episode of The Twilight Zone's second season, and it aired on February 3rd, 1961. And I don't really have any other notes or anything, because to be completely honest, I'm recording this about an hour after I recorded the last episode. So um, yeah, let's just dive right in. Um, so yeah, so before I get into the actual review, I'm going to go ahead and read a plot summary, uh, courtesy of Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. Um, of course, as always, I'm going to be spoiling the entire episode, so if you haven't seen A Penny for Your Thoughts, go and check it out on really any streaming service, uh, as of this recording, and come back and listen to the review. So, spoiler warnings aside, here's the plot description for A Penny for Your Thoughts. On his way to work one morning, Hector Poole purchases a newspaper. In doing so, he makes payment by tossing the coin into a box, and instead of landing face down, it lands on its edge. From that moment on, Poole discovers that he can read people's thoughts. At the bank where he works, he spends the afternoon overhearing customers thinking to themselves, both good and evil, realizing that people are different underneath the exterior of a smile. More, uh, most important, Poole had, has reason to believe Mr. Smithers, an employee of 20 years, is planning to rob the bank at 4.30. Mr. Bagby, the bank president, hears Poole out and gives him the benefit of the doubt. Before the old man can walk out of the bank, his case is searched and nothing is found but paperwork and pencils. Poole is fired for his error. In private, Poole learns from Smithers that robbing the bank has always been a dream of his, just a dream. Cleaning out his desk, Poole learns that he has earned the respect of Miss Helen Turner, an employee at the bank. With her advice and a little blackmail against his boss, he not only gets his job reinstated, but promoted as well. On the way home, Poole buys the evening paper and in making payment, accidentally knocks the same coin off its edge. The voices stop and Poole has returned to normal. Um, the cast and crew for... A penny for your thoughts. Uh, this episode stars Dick York as Hector B. Poole. This is his second and final Twilight Zone episode. His first episode was The Purple Testament. Of course, he is well known for his role in Bewitched as, uh, oh, who does he play in Bewitched? I've actually, full disclosure, I've never seen Bewitched. He plays Darren. That's right. Uh, he plays Darren in Bewitched. And, uh, yeah, so. Co-starring as Helen Turner is June Dayton. Uh, this is her only episode of The Twilight Zone, although she did appear in Patterns, the uh, Rod Serling scripted um, film that was on TV film, I guess, um, that kind of made marked his one of his big breaks in it uh, in the industry. Um, as E.M. Bagby uh, is Dan Tobin. 
This is his only episode of The Twilight Zone. And rounding out the cast is L.J. Smithers, played by Cyril Delevanti. Delevanti? Delevanti? Um, this is his first of four Twilight Zone appearances. Next we'll see from him is in this season, season two, episode 25, The Silence. Uh, writer for this episode was George Clayton Johnson. This is his third of seven episodes written of The Twilight Zone. Uh, we previously saw his work in Execution, um, which that was also a uh, an episode that I was a guest on my friend Brandon's Twilight Zone podcast uh, submitted for your approval uh, to review, so check that out. And next we'll see of George Clayton Johnson is his work in scripting the episode A Game of Pool. And director for this episode is James Sheldon. This is his second of six episodes. We just recently saw his work in The Whole Truth um, just a couple weeks ago. And then here in the next few weeks, I think we're going to see his work in Long Distance Call. So it's interesting. He's, I mean, he was there. <laughs> uh, quick succession. That's pretty cool. First of all, what I knew before going into this episode, and then I'll get into my... Um, into the plot description of the episode. Uh, what I knew before, it was nothing. Uh, the title kind of made me think of a bar for some reason. Um, maybe someone making conversation with someone at a bar. I was kind of dr- grasping at straws there. Or maybe something involving a wish at a fountain. Uh, throw a penny in, make a wish. Maybe, And then I put, maybe a character throws a penny in, wishes they can read minds. Um, I was, I was kind of close, kind of close. Okay, so right off the bat, this episode is kind of busy. Um, that city street scene is is really kind of cool. I I like the amount of extras they had in it. It's just it's a busy city street. It kind of uh, makes me feel like they had some more budget, I guess, because um, sometimes kind of backlot street scenes like that can be a little sparse. I was really impressed with how natural it looked for the quarter to just end up upright. Um, in reading, it looks, uh, from what I understand it, I think they used a string, some kind of string to, to get it to prop up. Right. So that was pretty interesting. It was a really good effect to be had on it. And as soon as it's revealed that he can read minds, I was already on board. I love that as a plot device. Um, just the moral implications of it, the, uh, the temptation that it can bring to do something that's maybe not above board and not very ethical, um, using it to your advantage in many ways. There's, there's so many ways that this, this particular kind of superpower can be used to the benefit of, of people that may not have the most best of, or the best of intentions, um, at the outset, which obviously this episode, um, (laughs) Uh, Hector Poole is very much, you know, he's a decent guy. He's a very, he's kind of oafish, but he's very much a nice guy who looks out for um, the best interests of people around him. So there's really not much in terms of temptation for him, or there's not much, um, there's not, there's no like good and evil kind of dichotomy with, with him or any kind of temptation there. So that, that was kind of a downer for me, I I guess, but, um, what we got is, is kind of okay. I guess I'll get into that in the full review here. Um, when he is hit by the car, first of all, he's hit by a car and I really like the juxtaposition of the driver being apologetic and friendly, um, toward Hector and then, uh, spiteful and just angry in his thoughts. It kind of, 
is a good way to introduce the concept that people aren't always as pleasant or, um, but yeah, as pleasant as they put themselves out to be, um, their outward person to be, I guess. Um, but even then that's not really, I don't know. That's not, I wouldn't say that that's explored fully, uh, to the fullest extent that it could be in this episode though. So that's kind of a, kind of a mark against it, I guess. Um, when he's hit by the car and he gets up and everything and he puts his glasses back on the, uh, cracked glasses just reminded me of time enough at last. Just saying that, I don't know if that was an, um, a conscious reference or not, but it just kind of reminded me of it, of Burgess Meredith and time enough at last. Um, so we get Serling's narration and he's explaining kind of the just basic, plot of the episode i guess um i love the use of uh herman's outer space suite in this in really any episode of the twilight zone so far in my exploration of the twilight zone and everything uh that's my favorite piece of music from the entire series it's just so so good and ominous and and spacey i guess um yeah so once we get to the bank we learn that mr bagby the kind of bank manager i guess uh, has a mistress and he's planning a tryst with with her behind his wife's back, of course, and it's a kind of a tightly kept secret. And that comes into play later. Um, and I was kind of wondering how it was going to play out with Poole and everything. And uh, it's it's satisfying. We'll get to that in a bit, but it's it's fairly satisfying. Um, one thing that I did notice also in these opening scenes with with Poole kind of discovering slowly his power um is that it was kind of sad how kind of once he gets this uh, he gets to the bank like this ability to read minds is really showing kind of showing him people's true opinion of him like he's not well respected aside from um helen but it's just i don't know it's it's just kind of a downer and he's he's just taking it like he's he's perfectly fine he's almost oblivious to it but it's just kind of a weird kind of sad undercurrent that he's not respected he's just not he's kind of looked at as kind of an idiot um in no uncertain terms and he's just mistreated it's just it's it's sad and i guess that's why uh helen or miss turner takes an interest in him and it kind of feels sympathetic toward him. And that kind of has a romantic kind of undertone to it, which is fine. That's great. But it's just kind of a downer that he's, you know, um, thought of so badly, but it's also kind of a mark toward his character that he can recognize that, or he notices that now that he has the ability to read minds, but he doesn't use that to exact revenge or anything or do anything that could be harmful to other people in the name of, you know, you know, just being offended by their opinion of him or anything. So that's kind of goes to show that like, first of all, this episode is pretty lighthearted and pretty, um, pretty pleasant, I would say. Um, and this, this kind of plot device kind of just showcases how he is, um, a, a likable person and that he doesn't take, take these things to heart or do anything nefarious with them, um, or exact any kind of revenge. Um, so we get a lot of scenes in the bank of him hearing people's thoughts and mistaking them for, for dialogue, which, okay, first of all, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's really frustrating to me. Um, it's really the most frustrating thing. Like, okay, he, he speaks or he meets with Mr. Sykes, who's getting the business loan for $200,000 and he is going to use that to bet 
um, on, I think, horses, and then use that to save his company and, and pay back the loan and everything. And so, like, he's, like, Poole is hearing these thoughts and everything, and then he's just, like, he's just, like, responding to the guy as if he's talking to him, even though, like, he, in maybe not in that scene particularly, but in other scenes that are similar to that, like, the camera does a close-up on the people's lips not moving, and, like, to show that Poole is seeing that their lips aren't moving, like, I don't know, like, <laughs> seriously, Dick York's performance is very um, uh, very nice and likable. He's got this very likable way about him, but it just feels like, like Rod Serling himself could walk into the bank and tell Poole that Poole is able to read minds and Hector Poole wouldn't understand what was going on. Um, like, like someone could just point blank, tell him that, Hey, you can read minds. That's why all this weird stuff is going on around you. Uh, you can use that to your advantage or whatever, but he just still wouldn't understand because he is so slow on the uptake on that. And, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's meant for comedy, but it was just really frustrating to me. Like I tweeted this, but I like, I like to believe that if I were to be, to find myself suddenly imbued with superpowers of some kind, like reading minds, I would be so excited about it. <laughs> like I would totally like recognize that it's something different from the everyday normal kind of thing. And I say that out loud and sure. Okay. Um, it's an impossible thing to really think about or, or plan out because, you know, I mean, it's never happened. So realistically, like if I were to wake up and like be able to hear people's thoughts and everything, I would probably think that I had some kind of mental disorder or something and I'd freak out and be terrified. But I don't know when you have so many examples of that and that are verifiable examples, like in uh, Hector Poole's um, circumstance here where he is responding to people's thoughts and getting, you know, shocked responses that are clearly indicative of them having those thoughts. Like I would, I would kind of, you know, try to, I, I would think that, yes, maybe I can read minds. Like It's just, it's so weird to me that he's so slow on, on, on recognizing it, but it does lead to, like I said, I don't know if that is meant for comedy or not, or just to pad time or whatever, but it was just really frustrating. However, when he is hearing, um, Helen thinking about him and everything and like saying that, like he, uh, basically saying very pleasant things about him, I guess, and, mentally telling him uh giving him advice or saying that she wishes he would do do things um a certain way he looks at this bust of a of a woman that's just kind of sitting on a on a cabinet um in the bank and it, the camera kind of slowly zooms in on it as, he, as he's kind of creeping up on it and like i thought that was that was great cuz then helen comes out from behind the counter and, and she's like finishing her thought and everything. And I thought that was a really good beat of comedy. I thought that was, that was fun. And for an episode that's fairly lighthearted and everything that was, that got a good, uh, that got a kick out of me. I really enjoyed that. And I also really think that the way that Helen or Miss Turner, um, appreciates and respects pool and, and, um, like she has these romantic um undertones to it but like for the most part her thoughts toward pool are just very sweet and innocent and um very just pleasant 
is the way I would I would do it. And I just the way I would describe it. And I just think that that's a really kind of sweet sentiment and it's a really good way to get those two characters to kind of connect in a in an organic way. Like it, I felt like the chemistry between um Dick York and uh June Dayton were was just really really well done and uh kind of low key but just pleasant, I would say. Charming is is the word I would use to describe it. And then as he's talking to her, we get this one guy, I didn't even catch his name really, but this one guy that kind of comes up, he's just a complete jackass and a pig. Um, he asks Poole, he's like, romancing the help, Mr. Poole? And like, and then he goes into his thoughts and he's just, he's just so just crass and, um, derogatory about it like he's like it's just filled with like these the sexual innuendo talking about how he's how like um helen is the most attractive of the people in the bank or in the accounts department uh, but it's not saying much because they're all they're all dogs and then he's speculating on what she would be like in bed and to be honest like i kind of thought like I was kind of surprised that they could get away with some of the things that he was saying. Like he was saying that he bets that she's like a tiger in bed and how, um, it's always like the quiet types that are, that are more primal in the sack or whatever, whatever he says. I was like, wow, that's, that's kind of crazy for 1961. I kind of thought that they would be under some more strict, uh, um, rules and regulations for that like the censors would would jump on that but i guess not so then we get to the smithers plot of the episode where the elderly bank employee is thinking about how he's going to rob the bank of um several hundred dollars several several hundred thousand dollars i think it's like two hundred thousand also uh yes i believe so or maybe i don't know uh, anyway um so he overhears or he hears the thoughts of Smithers planning to take the money. And it's, uh, that's like the most tense we, the, that's the most tension we get in this episode. Um, cause by and large, this is not a very tense episode. It's more uh, dramatic, I would say. Um, Smithers whole plan to just take, take the money and then leave. And then by the time anyone notices it's gone, he'll be in Bermuda and away from everything. Um, I don't know what it says about me. I'll say it with a caveat that I really like my job and everything, but who doesn't want that? Like who, who, like that's such a relatable fantasy. Like who wouldn't want to just escape to Bermuda or somewhere else exotic and tropical and live off of money that they didn't earn. Like that is just such a relatable fantasy. Um, maybe, maybe I find it relatable and, and nice cause I'm just super lazy, but, um, <laughs> as evidenced by the long hiatus that I took, but, um, yeah, it's just such a relatable thing. And, and that relatability is kind of what held my attention more than really anything else in this episode, to be honest. And it got me thinking, like, I wondered if Poole was going to be attempt to stop the robbery himself. And then we get the scene where he talks to the uh, bank guard who says that uh, he, he mentioned something about his gun or he thinks something about his gun. And then Poole asks him like, Hey, you're not, you wouldn't use that, would you? And the guard says, yeah, I would, if I, if I needed to, that's what it's there for. And so this is where I get kind of my, 
biggest gripe out of the way with this episode is that 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 specific scene, that specific line made me think that they were setting up something more dramatic for the last act of the episode. Um, It's just it's there and it feels like it's a good bit of setup, but it doesn't have any payoff whatsoever. And it's not that I wish that the episode was more dramatic or more action heavy or anything like that. But the tension in the story is so light. And what tension we do have, uh, being that Smithers is going to take the money from the bank and everything, and it's Poole's responsibility to stop him because he can read his thoughts and everything, like that's that's pretty that's pretty light in terms of tension, especially coming off of an episode like uh, the Invaders, where that is just tension, just ratcheted up to the highest highest degree. But the tension here, the the expectation that he's that Smithers is going to steal the money and everything ultimately it's taken away it's it's gone like it's revealed because it's revealed that he never was going to take the money um and like that's fine i like the resolution of that i like that he that it is just a fantasy of his and that's kind of how he gets through his day like i totally get that and i respect that and i appreciate it however having the that scene where the where where the guard references the gun and having that um, having that scene that sets up that there's a gun in play, it kind of just feels superfluous and non-eventful. Like it just doesn't come into play at all later. And it's just, I don't know. I just don't like it. I, I just thought that there could have been more done with that. And I guess to play devil's advocate, it does showcase Poole's more compassionate side or that he is, he's worried that this old man is going to get shot if he's caught with it. Um, so he's going to head it off and, and, you know, stop him by less violent means, but we don't really need a showcase of Poole's compassionate side because the entire episode has been Poole being a very pleasant person, if somewhat oafish and dim-witted, but he's been a very pleasant person throughout the episode, so we don't really need anything to really make him, um, make him want to stop the robbery, I guess. After that, we see that uh, he tells... Miss Turner or Helen about reading people's minds and like again going back to the chemistry of those two actors and uh the characters of Helen and, and Hector I like how just genuine the chemistry is and I like how comfortable she is in her thoughts like she has this really sweet and caring attitude toward Poole like she genuinely cares for the man but she's not too forward or anything like when when she's talking to him it's very um it's very, uh, very polite and very respectful and everything, but in her thoughts and everything, but, but she has these thoughts that convey her desires, but they're still fairly chaste and very, fairly just pleasant and genuine at a genuine, just respect for the man rather than, you know, wanting to, wanting to jump his bones, I guess. Um, and it's, it's a nice juxtaposition be- between that and the, the jackass earlier in the episode who was objectifying her. Like she has this genuine respect and attraction toward pool. Whereas we see other characters in her thoughts have these more, uh, not deranged, but more, um, uh, I don't even know what word I'm looking for <laughs> more, uh, dirtier thoughts toward, toward others. I guess there's a word that I wanted to use, but I can't think of it anyway. Um, so, uh, she, she tells him that he needs to, if he thinks that, um, that, that 
Smithers is going to steal the money, he has a responsibility to stop it. And like, he has to tell Bagby about it. So he tells Bagby about it and it, it takes a while for him to kind of, um, get on board with it. Cause it's such an unlikely thing. But then he kind of, he kind of turns around and says like, well, you know, out of everyone like who it would be, uh, the one to do it. Isn't it always the one you least suspect? And so Smithers is one you least suspect. So that's what he kind of goes with. And so they set the, they set things in motion to, to, uh, catch Smithers. So when they have the guard and Bagby, uh, grab his bag and, and, uh, kind of dump it out and everything. First of all, I love how Bagby is totally just smug about it. Um, you know, like he's, he's playing up the fact, like, he's like, in fact, I've had my eye on you for a while and I knew we would catch you and everything. He's just, Bagby is such a, such a douchebag, but, but he's not, he's not harmful. Like he's not, he's not like an adversary in the episode or anything. Like he's got his affair and he's got his own, his own thing going on. Um, and he's a smug kind of dick towards Smithers, but that's when he thinks that Smithers is stealing money from the bank. And like, it's just, it's, it works. It fits pretty well for the character, I guess. Um, so we get the reveal that he wasn't stealing the money, that he didn't steal any money that day or anything. And so we, uh, I, I really, I really like this line. It's so it's so, I don't know. Uh, Bagby says, where's that idiot pool? And then the camera shoots over to uh, Dick York and he just raises his hand and says, here, sir. <laughs> I thought that was a, that was kind of a charming comedic beat in the episode. And at this point, since we now see that Smithers didn't have the money or wasn't, didn't steal any money, I kind of started wondering like, well, is it going to be, is the, is there going to be like a Twilight Zone twist where it's revealed that he's not really reading people's minds, but rather he's like hearing their innermost desires or something. Um, but then like that immediately just didn't mesh with the rest of the episode and didn't really make much sense. Um, but that's fine because we get the kind of quote unquote confession of Smithers to pool where he talks about how he thinks about doing that, uh, all the time. And sometimes it's Bermuda, sometimes it's someplace else. And it's just kind of just a fantasy. And then he ends up with saying that, uh, saying, I guess I'm a coward, which I thought that was kind of interesting. It's, it's an interesting kind of self-deprecating thing for the character to think that he's a coward for not, you know, stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars and living off of the money of other people. Um, it's just, it was, it was interesting. Also, um, elephant in the room, kind of the interesting kind of, uh, um, idea of this episode, like the character is going to steal, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars from his employer. It kind of reminded me a little bit of psycho and Janet Lee's character in it. Um, so, so then we get, um, a scene where, um, uh, Hector is talking to Helen and he's talking about how he, uh, how, how he Smithers didn't steal the money and everything. And I do like that. Like this one line really stuck out to me. It says, uh, it's where he says, we do things without thinking at all. And we think things without having the slightest intention of doing them. I just, I just think that that, that line is a good summation of the episode and a good kind of, it's a good like indication of, of, humanity i guess or or it's a good um turn of phrase for something about you know pe what people do what we do as people um so then kind of the denouement of the episode and everything is that he gets his job back 
because um, it's revealed that that the investor that borrowed the two hundred thousand uh, dollars was arrested for gambling and everything, and so or was going to get the two hundred thousand dollars. So um, Bagby's super happy that you know um, that uh, Poole was on on the up and up about that, and then it it's kind of nice the kind of the end of the episode where he is blackmailing where pool ends up blackmailing bagby to get the promotion um and to also get a trip for smithers uh that was just so so nice uh, is the best way i can use to describe it i like that first of all i like that miss turner is giving him back uh like giving him backup through her thoughts it's all it's almost like she's pulling the strings but it's more tender than that it's not like a nefarious thing it's just she's giving him the motivation and the um courage to stand up to bagby and and get what he wants and deserves out of out of the position that he wants to get into in this job and there's something just so charming about the confidence that he has when he's blackmailing mr bagby and getting the trip for smithers um it's so it's it's such a uh i wouldn't say it's like a 180 or anything but it's it's like a very noticeable shift from his kind of kind of um reluctance or uh i wouldn't say awkward but silent um kind of attitude throughout the beginning parts of this episode it was just really really good and then he has the confidence to um, ask Helen out or to walk her home and everything. And then the episode kind of ends with him knocking the coin down in the afternoon. Um, and then that takes away his, his power and everything. It's a pretty straightforward episode, really. Um, I do want to mention that it was kind of cool. Um, I, I guess kind of cool to see the idea of like afternoon editions of newspapers. Um, cause we're in 2019 now. And I know that here in Indianapolis, like we don't have like afternoon ed- editions of newspapers. <laughs> like I don't think those exist anywhere anymore. Or I would be surprised if they do. Um, I just remember like when I was a kid, like, uh, we had two, two major newspapers in Indianapolis. We had the Indianapolis star and the Indianapolis news, and they both had afternoon editions, I think. And I was really interested in journalism and everything. So I remember like when they dropped their afternoon editions and then eventually the Indianapolis news went away. So now it's just the Indianapolis star. But, um, yeah, so I just, I just thought that that was a kind of charming look at, um, the past really. Um, so overall, this episode has, has its charms. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It didn't blow me away or anything, or it didn't, it didn't, it didn't impress me the way that like the invaders did. Um, but it's a pretty pleasant episode. It's, I would say it's better than the whole truth, which, um, isn't really, I I don't know if I would say it's not really saying much. It's just, I, this, the way that the whole truth, um, was comprised or like, put together of two different synopsis synopses for um the mr beavis show that never happened um watching watching a penny for your thoughts i kind of got that vibe a little bit like it felt like it was a show that or an episode that was kind of uh, it felt like it would have been it would have fit well in like a mr beavis show um but it had nothing to do with with mr beavis or anything so that's neither here nor there but it um i don't know it just it it didn't really blow me away. That's the best I can say about it. It was just, it was okay. It was, it was pleasant and Dick York's performance, uh, really kind of elevated it for me, but it's not enough to really make me think that it's anything too groundbreaking or anything. 
All right, so that's my review of A Penny for Your Thoughts, and I'm going to kind of round out this episode with some trivia for the episode of The Twilight Zone. <laughs> so, first of all, a short story that was written by NBC writer, producer, director Ted Neeland was the original inspiration for the plot, and the title comes from an old English expression, A Penny for Your Thoughts, which dates back to John Haywood's compilation of proverbs titled, A Dialogue Continuing the Number and Effect of All the Proverbs in the English Tongue. Um, I don't have a year on that, so, you know, Google. Um, uh, this other piece of trivia was kind of interesting, I guess. Um, kind of loose trivia. It's just Dick York's character, Hector B. Poole, bears a strong resemblance to Jim Carrey's Stanley Ipkiss in The Mask. Both characters are timid bank employees who suddenly gain supernatural powers. Um, usually I don't really care for that kind of trivia because it's just kind of... I don't know if it's not like an overt like homage or reference or anything, then it's just a loose kind of piece of trivia. Um, but I do think that it's interesting that by my count, at least, uh, I don't know if anyone else thinks this, but, uh, Dick York, like physically kind of bears a, a little bit of a, a resemblance to Jim Carrey. Like they have similar facial features. So I thought that was an interesting kind of thing. And if I was doing bonus reviews still, uh, I may have done the mask for this, but anyway, um, Another piece of trivia is that $200,000 in 1961 is worth just over $1.68 million in 2019. So just imagine having $1.68 million to cruise around the Caribbean with. Um, man, that would be great. Um, this episode um, was referenced in the 1997 movie. Like This specific episode was refer referenced in the 1997 movie Truth or Consequences, Nor uh, New Mexico. And there's an anecdote about George Clayton Johnson or George Clayton Johnson and um, Rod Serling that I, I'm, I'm just going to read a quote from uh, from Twilight Zone Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic um, that is itself a quote from um, – uh, from George Clayton Johnson, uh, quote, now I will tell you my favorite Twilight Zone and Rod Serling story. I was on set that day because I was invited. I took Lola, his wife, with me and we watched the filming. I introduced myself to James Sheldon, who was the director, and we talked a while and then Rod Serling comes on the set. He's leading a choir of onlookers like a tour guide for visiting dignitaries and everyone on the set was electrified. No one dared to make a move while he was there. Then he sees me and Lola standing there and he introduces me to the people. Quote, and this is George Clayton Johnson, the writer of this absolutely dandy film we are making right now. And I'm hearing my name in the praise. Then Serling introduces the director, but he introduced me first. I felt like a king. <laughs> um, and I just, I love that. I really do love that. It kind of speaks to Rod Serling's, um, I guess his attitude toward the creative process, I, I guess. Um, it's just, it's, it's comforting and nice to know that he had such a respect for writers and everything that he was able to, you know, obviously give recognition to the writer of the episode. Um, that's just something that I just really respect um, out of him. And that's a nice anecdote to kind of close out this review on. Um, yeah, and I guess that'll do it. Um, overall, uh, like I said, a penny for your thoughts was okay. Um, pretty solid episode. It, it was entertaining. It had some good performances and some good chemistry between uh, York and Dayton. Um, 
but overall, it was just kind of just it was a fine episode. Nothing too too special or unique, I would say. Um, next up on the podcast, I'm going to be talking about 22, um, which I've already seen. It's a it's a fun episode. I really like that one. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about that. And then also. If I remember how I'm going to release the episodes, I am going to have my Bandersnatch review come out um, either after this episode or it may have come up before this episode. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, you're listening to this in the future. You know more than I do. So uh, very excited to talk about Bandersnatch. Close out my review series on Black Mirror until the next season comes out, and that'll free me up for the Twilight Zone reboot Um bonus review series coming in just a couple of weeks. So that's going to be exciting. Um, I'm really, really hoping that I can get tiny on for the Bandersnatch review, but I honestly don't know if he's going to be available for it because I've got him doing a lot of stuff for, um, uh, for tower junkies and obsessive viewers. So I don't know if he'll be able to squeeze in Bandersnatch. So, uh, worst case scenario, I'll just review it on my own, um, which I'm pretty comfortable with. So, uh, yeah. So, That'll do it for this episode of Anthology. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you want to donate a penny for my thoughts, uh, go to uh, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer or click the donate button in the show notes of this episode or the donate button on anthologypod.com. All donations are super appreciated and go to pay the fees to keep the podcast running. And yeah, so that'll do it for this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you next time. And now, here's a clip from a recent episode of Tower Junkies, a podcast exploring the work of Stephen King from ObsessiveViewer.com. And so it was just so nice to see, when this news broke today, to see him just, re- like, a flood of retweets from Glenn Mazzara uh, of different news outlets and everything. Um, Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to anthologypod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, and follow the show on Twitter at ovanthologypod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official Anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewer's Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at teepublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewer's annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower Series, 
over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.